Hey y'all, welcome to the episode this week. Today's episode is another one that was recorded before the pandemic hit. This is a conversation that I had with Sam Parr. Way back when we could gather in person, Sam was gracious enough to host me as a speaker at HustleCon, which is a really fantastic event that happens in the Bay Area that is geared toward hardworking folks in the startup space. Back in the day, Sam started a newsletter to promote HustleCon, and it has taken on a life of its own. It's now very widely read and popular. The Hustle is a daily newsletter related to all things tech. And more recently, Sam has started Trends, which is a subscription-based research newsletter for entrepreneurs. Sam has a really fascinating story. He's been an entrepreneur sort of hustling from the beginning and paid his way through college with a hot dog stand and an online liquor store and a variety of other things. He's a fantastic, really thoughtful person to talk with. In this conversation, we talk about the downside of hustle. I push him a little bit on the importance of balancing hustle with mental health. We also talk a little bit about our shared experiences running the 400 as both high school and college athletes. Although this episode is not directly related to the pandemic and some of the current challenges that many of us are facing. In Sam's story, you'll hear a lot about reinvention and shifting and pivoting and all the things that, you know, all of us are thinking about right now as we adjust to a different framing of life. So I'm so grateful that Sam took the time to talk with me and I hope that you enjoy our conversation. Welcome to the Zen Founder Podcast. This is a place where we have conversations about mental health and entrepreneurship. We have a pretty broad conceptualization of what mental health means, sometimes depression, anxiety, sometimes relationships or physical health. The goal here is to bring some calm into the crazy roller coaster of ups and downs that is life for many entrepreneurs. I'm your host, I'm Dr. Sherry Walling. I'm a clinical psychologist and an entrepreneur, married to an entrepreneur, live in the world of entrepreneurs. And I'm so pleased that you have joined us for this conversation. So I'm really excited that I get to uh, talk to you today. And we have a time limit because Lance Armstrong is coming to your office. (laughs) What's that about? I think he's coming at 1230. We got plenty of time. But basically, I'm a huge endurance sports fan. And um, two years ago, maybe a year ago, it looks quiet in my office today because now all of our employees, practically all of them are in Austin at our office there. And we have a big sign that says our, our brand name. And I get an email and it says it's from Lance Armstrong. And he took a picture of the, our office and our sign. And he goes, just want to let you know, I'm a huge fan. I didn't know you guys had an office here. Big fan. And the email sender was Lance Armstrong. And I was like, I'm not like a casual fan. I, I followed the Tour de France religiously. And I was like, I don't believe you're Lance Armstrong. If you are, call me. Here's my number. And I get a call and it goes, Sam, what's up, man? It's Lance. And I was like, huh? And we ended up kind of becoming friendly and friends. And I went to his house. And anyway, I introduced him to some people who he's doing business with. And apparently, one of the guys who he's doing business with, who I introduced him to, is one of my investors. And they're, they just asked if they could borrow our office today for a meeting. And so uh, kind of funny how the world works. That's awesome. When I was an athlete, I could never get these people's attention. Now that I'm a a computer nerd, it's a lot easier. I was going to say, how did Lance Armstrong start following the hustle? So you have the hustle, which is the the newsletter and then hustle con. 
Yeah. So we have three businesses. So there's the parent company and that parent company owns our events, which you spoke at HustleCon collectively, like over the last year, I mean, let's say over the last two years, we've had 20 or 30,000 attendees at our events. And then we have the Hustle, which is a daily email that goes out to well over a million people. It's like news and business news and information. And then we have Trends, which is our paid subscription. And that's kind of like, that's our new thing. And people can pay money and they get access to a community. And then they get all types of research reports that we do where we deconstruct interesting businesses. Like we'll like explain how the companies work. Also, we built this technology that crawls the web and finds fast growing trends. And we reveal what they are and where the opportunities are. That sounds super cool. Which one like hooked Lance in? We just launched Trends. So not that one, but The Hustle. Because by nature, if we're doing a good job, that means we have a lot of eyeballs. So we're able to get a lot of cool people. So we've had a ton of like people who we're fans of start reading and he was one of them. So you dropped out of college or you left college your senior year? I finished online. I, I went to school in Nashville. And when I was a senior... I had owned businesses in college and I, I owned a hot dog stand and a few other things. And I was like, I want to start internet companies. Where in the world do internet companies live? And something called Silicon Valley came up, which I had no idea what that was. I thought that was LA. And I moved out here to pursue it. Was there any uh, trepidation about leaving school or charting this unknown path? I guess you'd already had hot dog stands. So you were already, you were already out on the limb. I knew I could survive. And my mother and father were very supportive. I mean, they supported me until I left school. I had started businesses, so I was able to pay my own way. But they like, I had a safety net for sure. Like I could always move home. That's what I mean. But also they were like, yeah, go ahead, do it. Like my mom drove me to the airport. So like they were very supportive and emotionally supportive for sure. So no, there wasn't too much fear. What do they think of what you've accomplished at this point? They're very proud. They're very proud. The business businesses and money aren't really important to them, but they're very proud that I uh, can set my eyes on a prize and get it. And my parents, like a lot of entrepreneurs, parents, particularly internet folks, they they have no idea. Like like they don't understand how I make what I make. Like what your job is. Yeah. Well, they understand what my job is, but they like, they didn't teach me any of this stuff. They taught me like good values, like how to respect people and how to like be nice and all that. But they didn't teach me any of this internet stuff. So I think they're really proud that like I kind of figured it out. Have they been to any of your events? Yeah, they've been to HustleCon. I mean, you, you spoke at HustleCon. It's cool. And when you walk out into the crowd, you get like swarmed. And they're like, you're like a celebrity here. And I'm like, I know it's weird. (laughs) I'm I'm internet famous, mom. And also famous in this beautiful big, because you have it in this theater, or at least the one that I attended is in this beautiful old theater in Oakland. And it just has that, that cachet of like, this is a special event. This is a special place. Yeah, so HustleCon will we'll have two or 3,000 people and it's at this beautiful theater. We've done it at that theater a few times. We do them in New York and then we have events all over the country. And it's so cool that you can create something that you think is like this little internet thing, but then you show up. Like we'll have 1,000 people in Chicago or 1,000 people in Texas and it's really cool that you can show up and you're like, wow, people actually care about this. It's really neat. Like you've created this thing that people are really connected to. And I think people know you and they're connected to you, but it also exists outside of you. It's way beyond me. I mean, for sure. It's not It's not the Sam Parr show. It's way beyond me. It's more so we tapped into this need where people... Like, you live in Minnesota, right? I do, yeah. So people in Minnesota or Iowa, we'll meet people... I'm from Missouri. We'll meet people from all... Like the Midwest. And 
maybe where you live, you're kind of like a little bit of an oddball who like created this internet thing. And so we kind of tapped into this community and made them feel like they're like welcome and they could feel at home and things like that. And so we kind of just piggybacked off a, a movement that I think was already happening. Well, you and your husband have done it with the microconf. Sure, sure. Real, real similar. Yeah. So you and I have an uncommon commonality, and that is that we both are track athletes and both ran the two and the four, which is kind of an unusual combination. I think a lot of people run like the one and the two or the four and the eight, but I'm a big fan of the two, four combination. What what was your PR for the 400 and the 200? Oh my gosh. I knew you were going to ask me that. It was 58. Solid. That's really solid. Or something. Yeah. I was, you know, I was a strong. No, that's great. Solid contender. Yeah. (laughs) Do you still run? Yeah. So I went to college on a track and field scholarship. It was division one and I did it for two years. And then I got out of shape when I started getting into businesses. Now I'm getting back into shape. I still run the track. I have a goal this year. So I I used to be able to run fast, like 47, 48, 400. My goal this year is uh, 53. So we'll see what can happen. Wow. Okay. We'll see. That's a, that's a good goal for somebody who's, who's been out of it for a little bit. Okay. Yeah, I, I still exercise a lot, but uh, I think the 200 and 400, I think like if you can run a good 400 meter dash, that's like the optimal thing to train for in order to have just general fitness. But no one trains like that. It should be more popular than it is. I feel like the 400 is like, it's the master race of badasses. I'm, well, I mean, every race has its moments. Okay, I don't take anything away from the marathoners, but the 400 is just such a, a mental challenge to keep your body going that fast for that long. And it uses all energy systems. It uses anaerobic, anaerobic. And so if you can, if you train for the 400, you're going to be strong physically. Like you'll be able to lift things above your head. You'll be able to squat a lot of weight, but you also have enough endurance. You'll be able to prevent injuries. I mean, it's, it's a real, people should train for that more often. It's a good one. Hey, how has sort of your life as an athlete shaped your life as an entrepreneur? Do you find a lot of cross-sectionality there? 100%. I only did individual sports. So in high school, I only did track and field and cross country. I just did a half Ironman. I have always done triathlons. I've always done those individual sports, swimming and whatever. And when you're at a state championship or something like that, when it's just you versus your seven competitors, it teaches you how to be strong mentally. And I've always, like when I left school, I I was kind of considered an oddball in college because starting businesses and everything, like when you're young, you're kind of weird. And in track and field, you're on your own as well. So I've always kind of been a little bit of a loner. And it was probably has a lot to do with running. What are the things that you used to say in your mind as an athlete, or maybe still do that kind of help you stay motivated or keep going? Well, so when you're racing, like I used to throw up before races, like it's so much fear. And what I used to tell myself is, I used to say, I am just a machine. Like these emotions I have, they are not real. Like they are just trying to prevent my machine from breaking. And I am a machine who is built to race. Or in terms of business building, I'll say, I am a machine that is built to do this. I am objective. I am rational. All of these emotions are here just to get in the way of my gears, but they are false. They are not true. I am here for a mission. I'm going to do X, Y, and Z and nothing else matters. I would almost imagine like, well, horses don't get nervous because they're just like, they don't care about being embarrassed. They're just like animals who only care about going from A to B. That is what I am right now. I am in machine mode. Emotions do not impact me. How does that work in real life? It's definitely a, a, a good coping mechanism. I, I learned what stoicism is recently. And, I've, and I think that that's actually kind of like a similar 
way of looking at life, which is like, all these emotions are normal. They are around here, but I just need to accept them and move forward. And and it's just a coping mechanism and it's quite effective. I'm curious, Sam, how that's been as you've transitioned from being a solo entrepreneur slash solo athlete, where it's you versus the competition, to now being someone who has formed some pretty significant teams who now have to work together as teams. Does that kind of robot kill the emotion mentality? Does that, does that work in, in sort of the leadership realm? No, not all the time. It does not. It only helps with internal dialogue. And I would say that on a whole, I'm a really, I've improved a lot. But at, when I started, I was a horrible manager because I had that mentality of like, your emotions don't matter. Like you are here to work. And that's good for me personally. But as a leader, it was horrible. And so early on, I realized early on, I was like, all right, so if I'm starting a business, that means I got to be this great leader, this visionary, I got to lead the day to day, I got to do all this stuff. And, I, and then over the years, I'm like, no, I'm actually good at I'm really good at a few things. And I'm really bad at a, a few other things. And one of those other things that I was really bad at was being a day to day manager of people, I just that whole machine mentality doesn't work. And so I hired a president of our company, and he helps me manage people. I also have a, a coach who helps me So no, that individual like machine attitude is only helpful for me, but mostly it's not helpful for others. Yeah, not helpful in the context of relationships. No, it's horrible because you think like, I'm just going to brute force this. And then I got so pissed and I was like, screw this. I'm not doing these types of businesses. I'm only going to do businesses that optimize for the least amount of employees. And then once I started looking at those, I'm like, well, you still got to manage like a couple people or work with people. So I got to figure out how to work with people. I just got, I have to figure out how to do that. And so that's what I've been focused on. It's really hard though. How is the experience of working with, I assume like an executive coach or how's that work for you? How's that going for you? Changed my game. I changed everything. Yeah. We use Torch, torch.io. I have this coach named Peter. He basically coached me into hiring a president of our company who manages most everyone. And he works with me and my president. And it basically helps my president understand how I think and it helps me understand how others think. I think that, I don't know, like everyone says that they're like on the spectrum or something. I think maybe like I didn't really have as much empathy towards how other people felt. And I always thought I was like, maybe I'm a little autistic or something because I don't understand. Like, like there's these concepts that I really struggle to grasp. And he's helped me learn those a little bit. Yeah, I think I see that a lot among really successful entrepreneurs is that the capacity to just shut down emotion and just keep going. And in a way, the capacity to not care about other people is really adaptive to being a successful entrepreneur. But then of course, you get to a certain level of success and it becomes a problem. And so having a coach or a therapist or somebody who can come in and be like, okay, here's relationships 101. Here's how you motivate people. Here's how you talk to people, especially in a partnership between like yourself and your president. I think that becomes really, really helpful. 100%. I had to like learn those. And my president was like captain of the football team, president of student council, that type of guy. So he's like, cool. <laughs> yeah. He's like, well-loved. Everyone loves him. And he could be a hard ass on people. He is a hard ass on people, but his coworkers love him. And I was like, I got to figure this out. And so the coach has helped therapy. I've done therapy for many years. That helps. Marrying a strong woman who's emotionally stable has helped. And so my way of going about things. I started my career at a relatively young age and I was kind of had to become a manager. I did a horrible job at it. I always tell people this whole business game, intellectually speaking, it's really simple. Emotionally, 
it's very hard. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of why I have a job. <laughs> and, and the you know, like you're right. Like the looking at the spreadsheets is not rocket science. Even having a good idea and being able to build a good idea is not rocket science, but like- You don't even need a good idea. Like you could create like a plumbing company. Like we all know how plumbers work. You just find people who can do the plumbing and then you get people who need it done and then you send them out and you get the job done and you take a little bit of the money. Like that's so simple. And you could become a billionaire doing that. Can you harness your emotions to handle that each and every day? Can you inspire and motivate people? Can you handle your own internal dialogue? That's the hard part. That is the hard part. What are the things that you're learning about right now, this week, this month, things that you're like, okay, this is my growth area right now? A few things. Basically, how to be patient. Like, There's a certain time when you don't want to be patient, but then there's a certain time when you do want to be patient. Like, There are some times where you're like, no, we can get this done in significantly less time than you think we can get this done. So let's push it. And then there's other times where you have to know when you have to be patient and be like, all right, this could take a little bit longer than I thought. I can coach you through this. We can, we can get this done. So figuring out when to put the pressure on and when not to put the pressure on, that's been really hard. Figuring out that not everyone thinks like me. So for example, I'm motivated by winning. I don't necessarily like power and control, but I like putting myself to the test and becoming number one in the category and realizing not everyone feels like that. You know, some people just want a job that's like a great job that they feel good coming into each day. And that was like a foreign concept to me. But that's actually an okay thing to have. You want people like that. And figuring out that some people think like that, that's really what I'm working on. Dealing with distractions and staying focused is quite hard too. I also live in San Francisco. I've got friends that are immensely successful, like they've sold billion dollar companies and trying to figure out when it's okay and when it's not okay to compare yourself to others is something that I'm working on now. I was thinking about the first thing that you said, it kind of relates to the last thing too, in this sense of learning to be patient, learning when perhaps maybe enough is enough, or or at least to know when you're winning in your game and how that might look different than other people winning at their game. And I wonder how that sense of patience or enough, those are very different words than the word hustle. And hustle is sort of the, the core word of your brand. What does hustle mean to you, first of all? I always said that to me, hustle means figuring out where you are and where you want to go and doing whatever it takes to get there and finding the creative ways to make that happen. That's hustle to me. But what it's not is last year, me and my coach, all we worked on was impulse control. Because like, for me, if I like had a goal, it's like, I got to do whatever it takes. And if anything gets in my way, I got to react and I got to crush it. And it's like, well, maybe that isn't the right way to go about things all of the time and to have those impulses to hold back or to not yell at someone or not to freak out. That is what I have worked on all last year. Yeah. I think that the term hustle in in my world gets a little bit of a bad rap because of its tie to whatever it takes. Whatever it takes, does it take your family? Does it take your health? Does it take getting a divorce? Does it take like leveraging your mortgage to, to put in your business? Like there are some things where whatever it takes, maybe not such a great idea or it costs you so dearly in other parts of your life. Well, my opinion towards that is if that's really what you want, then do it. But I ask people, I'm like, is that really what you want? Are you willing to accept the consequences of that choice? Yeah. Like a lot of people say they want this thing or that thing. And I'm like, all right, that's great. What are you going to pay for it? What are you going to give up? Some people are willing to sacrifice family and health and all these other things. And in my head, I don't want to judge them. Like, I I don't think there's a right and wrong way. If that's what they want to do, then 
as long as that's what they want to do, then go ahead and do it. But I always think like, if you want X, just know that you're going to have to pay Y. So are you willing to do that? And just know that's probably what's going to, you're going to have to give up. I think there's a world where you can build a huge business and be a great family person, be a great father or whatever. But there are a lot of ways to, to get it done. And you might need to make a lot of sacrifices to, to make it happen. Or you have to modify the whatever it takes to, I'm willing to give this, 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 and this, but there are certain things I won't give. Totally. And, and I'm not a father, so we don't have kids. So I'm, I'm sure my perspective will change drastically when that happens. Yeah. Yeah. How has marriage changed the game for you? Because you got married quite recently in the last year or so. Yeah, I got married. My wife is named Sarah. We got married in September. It's freaking awesome. I think like I'm like a neurotic person and I probably attracted a lot of neurotic women. And when I dated that people who were similar to me, it's like craziness. And once I was able to find a woman who was just an emotional rock, it was like the greatest thing that's ever happened to me. It's like people talk about life hacks. The greatest life hack is finding a, a wonderful partner. Like that is like the greatest thing that's ever happened. And Sarah comes from a wonderful family. And at first I was like, that's kind of like a good perk. I married into a great family. And then I'm like, oh, wait, no, I purposely wanted to marry her because her family's so awesome. And so I feel like it's really is a one plus one equals three type of mentality. Yeah, especially when you find someone who really is strong where you're weak. Like it just fills you out as a more complete human and in lots of ways. And I always hated when people would say, oh, I don't have time for a relationship or like, you know, I'm too busy for this. I'm like, no, no, no. You're just dating the wrong people. Because I have found that when I dated Sarah, there was never a time where I would have to say like, oh, I can't go work because I got to hang out with her. Like that never, there was never that I have to pick and choose because A, she was supportive because we have similar values. And B, if I wanted to do something, she could just come with me or we could do something together and still achieve what we wanted to get done. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And so like finding that strong relationship, you and your husband are are both very driven. You probably have a very similar attitude where like you understand the sacrifices and and you guys make compromises and and, and can kind of go with the flow. Some relationships I've had, it was awful. It was like one of us is holding each other back and it was just, it's a freaking nightmare. Yeah, that's a really, really hard dynamic in a relationship where you see either there's a scarcity mentality or a sense of threat or whatever drives it, but you feel like you're you're being held back by someone. It's a nightmare. Then in those situations, it's a nightmare. I've been in them and oh, it's horrible. And so now that like me and Sarah went to couples therapy as like a preventative thing and we were talking to the therapist and she was like, you guys are good. Like what are you talking <laughs> about? And we're like, we don't really have problems. <laughs> so yeah, that was like, a game changer was finding a, a woman whose values were aligned with mine. And sounds like she's, she's strong in herself. She knows who she is and she's doing her own life. Yeah. She's a uh, high up at Airbnb and is crushing it. The reason I love Sarah, she's from New York, Manhattan, went to an Ivy league school. So way different from what I was, my background. Like this Missouri, Missouri boy. <laughs> yeah. Way different. But her mom and dad are immigrants from Haiti And so they grew up, humble beginnings, started businesses. Anyway, very similar aligned. We're very aligned, even though on paper, we look totally different. You have different stories, but really similar values. Yeah. Beautiful. What's a time when you maybe felt really discouraged by the way the businesses were growing or have you had times where you wanted to quit? Yes, all the time. It happens all the time. We got offers to sell the company about a year ago. 
you guys have been through that. Your family has been through it. It's a horrible or it can be horrible. It's, it's just, it sucks. And I ended up walking away like the day before I was supposed to sign paperwork. I was like, nope, we're not going to do this. It was awful. It was just a hard decision. Whatever. First of all, problems. I mean, I remember I was like, I'm out. And so I, I was like, well, what would I do if I sold this business? I'd probably take a few weeks off and then start something else. And then so I, so I just went and took six weeks off. And I was like, I'm going to take six weeks off and I'll come back and I'll, I get all the perks and still have my business. And that phase, it was awful because you have these people saying like, well, your business is good, but it sucks for this reason, that reason. Therefore, we're, oh my God, that is a horrible experience. And so I did not like that. And I, I wanted to quit then for sure. Did it feel like commentary on your wealth, like your worth as a person? Yeah. I was like, this person who sold their company for X, like, I bet they didn't go through this. Why am I like, why do I feel like inferior right now? Yeah, it's horrible. It's a really, it's a crappy experience to go through. I mean, if it works out, it's worth it. What was it like to walk away that close to the end of the deal? Because I, I mean, I appreciate like the level of lawyering and conversations and scrutiny that goes into even putting a deal like this together and to get so close to the end, I can imagine there was tremendous pressure to just do it, even though you had apprehensions. One, it was validating. I was like, man, I built something that someone wants to pay tens of millions of dollars for. That's crazy. And then the second thing that I felt was like, well, I know they want it and I know I can get it. So I'm not going to do it because I just wanted that feeling to know that I was good enough to make it happen. And then the third feeling was like depression where it was like, wait a minute, I was about to have all this money and all this stuff. I still like have the same insecurities that I came into this with. Like maybe that's not going to change much. <laughs> so it was like depressing. I got really depressed. I was like, man, I, I had a great opportunity. And, and even without that, I'm like, I'm okay but this didn't make me happy. What's going on? And that was quite depressing. Like having, having the big payoff almost in hand was like, oh, I'm, I don't feel differently about myself. I don't, I'm not suddenly a perfect human just because this thing was offered to me. So the depression came in with feeling like, okay, nothing's going to help me feel better. Was that? Yeah, that's exactly. Because you think like, all right, if I get this, it's going to feel better. And I think to some extent that might be true. Like there's that study that says if you make a certain amount of money, incremental, like you, you only get happy a little bit. I passed that a long time ago. Like you have to like three X that in San Francisco though, or maybe like 10 X that I don't know. <laughs> oh, I think you have to increase it a lot. My opinion is it's like $250,000 a year in San Francisco, maybe even more, but I hit the mark. I've already passed the mark to where I can buy a lot of the basic stuff that I want. I can go out and buy a car. It's no big deal. I felt like, all right, but if I had 20 million, then I would be really happy. And then you're like, I have, I can get that. I don't know if that's going to be the answer. And then check this out. I had a friend, two friends who started a company and they sold it for about a billion dollars, a lot of money. And they're my best friends. And we went to the ATM and they each had about a hundred million dollars in their bank account, like the day the wire hit. And uh, I was like, sweet. Good job, guys. This is great. And we just went to McDonald's and like had a burger. And, and I was like, so what now? And they're like, I don't know. What, what do we do? And th th they had fear. It was fear that they had. It was like, there was a brief like celebration of like, wow, that number is huge. And then it immediately it went to like, well, where am I going to invest it? What am I going to do? What do I do with all this money? Yeah. Yeah. It was like fear. And uh, I mean, look, that's cool to have that problem, but uh, it was still a problem. And it's, that's, that's a bit shocking. Yeah, it's like this unexpected burden that people don't don't know is going to happen. It's it's kind of funny when I lived in Nashville. I lived in the pro like I lived next door to the projects, and me and my buddy Rydell, who I met 
who's my neighbor, we used to just chill outside on my pickup truck and drink beer at night. And I was poor. I mean, I, I was in college, I had nothing. And he was poor too. And I was so much fun. And every once in a while, I'm like, man, I wish I could just go do that. <laughs> That's always available to you if you want pickup truck beer, Nashville. <laughs> yeah, it is. Are you going to be doing this in 10 years? I will always be scheming. Yeah. I will not be the CEO of a large company more likely than not. I will probably let someone else run the company, which I already have a little bit. I'm not probably the right person to lead a large operations with a lot of people. That, that's probably not me. I will always be scheming and starting stuff. Yeah. I read somewhere that you went on this like giant motorcycle trip where you spent a year motorcycling around the US, something like that. Maybe, maybe six months. Yeah. So when I lived, I lived in Nashville, I had this, I had like hot dog stands, like small business, got rid of it and moved out to San Francisco, started something. And like 12 months or so after we had a, a small acquisition, it was a very small deal. But I took that, like took that money and was like, all right, it's not enough to like live forever, but what, what should I do? And so I started HustleCon and I did the first HustleCon and I started it, like had the idea and then launched it like in 60 days. And I only did it to meet people, but unexpectedly it made money. And so right after that happened, I was like, well, let's go uh, figure out what to do next. And so I bought a motorcycle and I had intended to only go for like a week. And then I just kept going for like a few months and I drove all over the country. What were some of your favorite moments from that experience? So like I would go to like the desert, I would go to like small towns and I loved meeting all types of people. I would use Couchsurfer. I only, I spent months on the road. I only spent $5,000 total. Like I spent very little money just on gas and like gas station food because I would sleep on Couchsurfer or at motels or campsites. And I would meet all these cool people and I would meet poor people, rich people, Republicans, Democrats, everyone. And it was so cool to meet all these types of people. And I'm like, we're pretty much all the same. Everyone's the same. And like people are like, oh, the South is full of Republican rednecks. There's Republican rednecks in North California. It's like... (laughs) Oh, I know. That's where I grew up. (laughs) Yeah. It's like every city is the same and every rural area is the same. And it's all... It's all the same type of people. It's all the same. And that was really cool to like understand that. How did that shape your next venture? Yeah. So during that trip, I read two books. I read the biography of John Rockefeller. And uh, he's a good one to read if you work with successful people because he was like a ruthless businessman, but a really great husband and a really great father. And that was really inspiring to me. And then I read the biography of Ted Turner. And he was a a pretty bad husband and not that great of a father. He cheated on his wife a lot and he wasn't around for his kids, but he created something that shaped culture. He created CNN. And when I read that book, when I read Titan, I was like, all right, I can be a ruthless business person, but a good family man. So that's great. And when I read Ted Turner's book, I was like, this guy's from the South. I'm kind of from the South. He took on New York and created CNN up there in New York. I'm pretty good at content like marketing. I bet I can do that. So I have three kiddos. Two of them are nine and one is 13. And they are very entrepreneurial in their own ways. But we often spend a lot of time sort of talking with them about the entrepreneurs that we know and the kinds of skills that those entrepreneurs really relied on to become successful. So what was that for you? I mean, you're obviously somebody who loves to read. You have done a lot, a lot of writing in your life. What are the things that you have really like leveraged that were things that maybe you started... Um, developing your competence and when you were young, a younger child? Yeah. So my father started a fruit stand and it eventually grew to like a produce brokerage company, 
a really successful company. And so he taught me salesmanship at a young age, basically the gift of gab, just as simple as just how to shoot the shit with someone. When you talk to someone, how to like relate and just like poke fun, like basically flirting with men and women, right? It's just riffing. And so I learned how to do that at a young age and I realized how powerful that is. Is that because you were working the fruit stand? Well, I would go to his office and I mean, it was all on the phones and you're selling onions. Like all onions are the same. So how do you like make your deal happen? It's like, you got to like kind of, you got to build a uh, build a relationship with a customer and you kind of got to like riff with them and just, you know, like flirt, whatever you do with people, you just make them like you. Be interesting, have charisma, be enticing. Yeah. Yes. So I learned that at a real young age. Um, I remember in sixth grade, I read this book called How to Win Friends and Influence People. And I was like, oh, that thing my dad was teaching me, that's like this stuff. So I kind of learned how to do that at a young age. And then I would say I learned in my early 20s when I was 20 or 21, I read this book called Mastery by Robert Greene. And he talked about the importance of learning a skill set. And I was like, all right, I have this like salesman thing, but that's not like, I need a hard skill. And so I picked copywriting. So I learned how to be a copywriter. And that like changed the game for me. If you learn how to be a good copywriter, you learn how to become a good business person because the art of copywriting, what it means is, is figuring out what motivates people and how to use the written word to communicate that to the masses and to get them to buy something, whether that's buy into your dream, buy your product, buy into your company's mission, buy anything. Like I try to master copywriting. I really tried to like, I practice, I had drills. Like I treated it like a, like, like running. Like I, I had like training. That's fascinating. I mean, and you still do a lot of writing. I still do a lot of writing and just when I'm talking, maybe when I'm talking here, like people can notice it. I, I like, you got to figure out the rhythm that captures attention and things like that. That was all from copywriting. Fantastic. Yeah. It's interesting to talk with you compared to a lot of the other entrepreneurs that I talk with because everybody has their own pacing. So I interviewed Andrew Warner yesterday from Mixergy and I love Andrew. He's funny, but he's long-winded. I'm like, come on, Andrew, don't make me interrupt you. Like, you know, as an interviewer, like, dude, the length of your answers is very like, it's like two paragraphs. Like, it's like long enough to be like, there's substance here, but not so long that I'm like, come on, Sam. So thank you. Your copywriting is definitely coming across in your... No, for real. That's all copywriting stuff, which is when you're just learning how to do it, it's keep sentences below 25 words and keep paragraphs below four sentences. That's just like a basic rule if you want to start. That's amazing. I will tell my kids. They'll be like, okay, my mom said that I couldn't write any paragraphs longer than four sentences. No, man. Copywriting is so good because it uh, it's not like just copywriting that you're learning. It's desires and what motivates people. That's what you're learning. Human motivation and how to match it, how to anticipate it, how to articulate it. And if you can become a good copywriter you can make money forever. You will never have a problem making money. That's cool. That's a a great skill. Well, what's the rest of your day look like? You're going to go hang with Lance Armstrong? Yeah. So I I launched a podcast, um, Joined the Tribe. And we launched that. So I got to record that today. It's called My First Million. Our goal is to get to 100,000 listens per episode. So I've been recording those three days a week. So I've got to record that. And then, uh, yeah, we have Neil and Lance come in. Hopefully, I'll be able to say hi to them for a little while. And then we launched this thing called Trends that I told you about. And so that's running smoothly, but I got to like figure out how do we make that bigger? So I basically have to go into like invention mode and figure out what more products and services can we launch. More scheming. It's scheming. That's it. I say ABS, always be scheming. And so I go to my scheming mode. So I have 
time on my calendar where I don't like being interrupted and I just focus on scheming. <laughs> I love it. It's a good way to spend a day or a chunk of a day at least. It's stressful because you think like, what can I think of from my brain that I can get all my employees to bet their future on and to get people to give me money and for them to be satisfied with giving me money? It's really stressful. That's a very stressful thing. Yeah, that is stressful. Maybe you could just let the ideas out first and then, you know, give them the weight of the world. Totally. But uh, that definitely goes in your head. I mean, creating stuff, basically, like, it gets like almost spiritual. You're like, all right, I have this blank piece of paper. How do I grab stuff from up here, put it in here, and then put it on this blank piece of paper? And this blank piece of paper turns into this thing. That process of creation, it's incredibly rewarding, but it is, it's hard. It's really hard. And it's, but it's amazing. Like, just like these buildings, this computer we're using, this microphone, like that was just in someone's brain and they like turned it into a thing. And that process is really like almost spiritual. It's really cool. Things that didn't used to exist and now do. I mean, that is, it is very spiritual. It's sort of, that's God, right? Right. And that's like the whole, like when people talk about being an entrepreneur, I'm like, that's what it is. It's that like manifesting thing. It's not putting entrepreneur on your business card or like buying a domain name, like that's worthless. But like this act of creation is really cool. And so whenever people talk about like work-life balance or things like that, I'm like, I don't think there is such a thing for some people. Like it's just life. It's fluid. It's just life. Like it's just like being an athlete. Maybe you'll have a, you'll have off season where you will still exercise, but you won't be in competition mode. You're still like an athlete all year round. You're still an athlete, right? You eat like an athlete. You think like an athlete. Yeah. And everything about like, you're not going to stay out late because you want to wake up early so you can exercise. You're not going to drink a lot of alcohol because you don't want to get hung over and hurt your body. Like you're always an athlete. It doesn't matter if you're in season or not. And I think the creation process for businesses. I mean, if you're a creative person, you are always in creative mode. It's just maybe sometimes you're in the off season or sometimes you're in competition season, but you are always that. Absolutely. Well, I really appreciate the chance to talk with you. It's been a really fun conversation. Yeah, thanks so much. And I know that you're obviously out there on the internet. So people who are listening who want to learn more about what you're doing can go to thehustle.co. Yeah, they can, so if they want to sign up for The Hustle, The Hustle is a free daily email. So if you want your business news in your inbox, you just go to the hustle and sign up. The thing I'm proud of most is trends. You can go to trends.co. It costs $299 a year, or you can pay a buck and uh, get a trial. If you don't like it, just cancel it. We have this podcast that I'm working tirelessly on. And so it's called My First Million. You could, that's free. Or uh, follow me on Twitter, that's Sampar. And sometimes I get a little outlandish there. So you can see what that wreck is like. That's what makes it fun. All right, Sam. Thanks so much. Have a great day. Thank you. Thanks for listening. We'll be back in two weeks with a new episode of the podcast. In the meantime, feel free to check out zenfounder.com for lots of resources about the kinds of conversations that we have on the podcast. You can get information about working with me, about maybe joining a Zen tribe. It's sort of like a mental health boot camp for entrepreneurs. We also have lots of content on our blog, links to resources in our courses and books for sale. So check us out there and we hope to provide anything and everything that you might need to make the entrepreneurial life a little bit easier.